before I get into the lesson, though, I just want to kind of make a couple of notes. One, last week was really great experience for me and my group. We actually hosted up here at the gathering place our in-home worship in case anybody uh, walked in as guests. And we did have some guests there, um, but it was such an, a really great experience to be able to kind of have a more intimate worship setting. Now, I heard stories come in from all our groups. We had seven groups meet on Sunday in homes around the city. And that was, I thought, just a really big win. Um, we actually had higher than our normal attendance average. We had more people coming to our in-home worship than we seemed to, uh, at least on average, here, which was really good news. And so we were exercising our muscles, our disciplines of worshiping together in homes and maybe a little more awkward settings. But actually, I think it didn't feel awkward. It didn't feel like work. It felt really life-giving to be with people that you already love. Um, that was a, I'm praising God for that. But then, as you know, something else happened this week. Uh, they announced uh, a leaked document from the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade. And, and then, you know, the next day I'm coming home from the office up here and at the corner of Poplar and Highland, there were protesters gathering with signs. Um, it was just a really kind of tumultuous week in terms of the conversation around life and children and moms. And, and then, of course, today is Mother's Day. And so all of that kind of builds here. So I just wanted to kind of make a, make a little space for prayer today for moms and for babies, for our country and for our church and for your family. Could, could you join me as we pray about these things? Our Father, our Lord and our God, the one who gives life, the one who uh, desires to make a family of all the nations, uh, the one who adopted us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We look around at the state of families and of people, the fear, the desperation, the vulnerability of mothers and women, the vulnerability of children, the unborn, Father, we say how long, but we also know that change is coming, and Father, I pray that you would work in this church to prepare our hearts to open our homes for the cause of life, for mothers, for children, for foster care, for adoption, for ministry to the poor and justice reform, so that we can be a beacon of your name and your cause and an imitation of you so that all can see what you are really like. Would you prepare us in this season as we anticipate change coming in our city to be ready to respond in word and deed? Father, today we also celebrate with mothers mindful that some have tear-filled eyes today because of, of a lost mother, a past mother, or of a longing to be a mother. We're mindful today that some get to celebrate their first Mother's Day. We're mindful of expectant mothers and mothers who are just overwhelmed and busy and just exhausted. And I pray in all of these that we would look to you, our Father. Would you equip these mothers for the task that you have given them? Father, for those longing, would you fill their wombs with life? For those mourning, would you be near them in their grief? Motherhood is a special gift, and we're so grateful to have so many wonderful mothers in this family. I'm thinking of spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, people who love my children and love these children here. And I pray that you would form us into a church where we don't just experience the church's family around tables and in groups, 
but that we could have sisters and mothers and grandmothers in the faith who show us the way of Jesus, who walk with us in every season of life. Would you make that a reality in this church? Father, we ask all of this for your glory and for the kingdom of Christ our, our Lord. Amen. All right, Luke 10. There's nothing quite out of rhythm like a Hopkins family dance party. (laughs) None of you are surprised by that, right? And I don't think I'm the worst one in my family, but you know what I mean by out of rhythm. There's like, there's a lot of movement there, but it doesn't seem to go together. I think when we think of our rhythm of life, most of us are living out of rhythm for a couple of reasons. If you're kind of on the, the younger stage, your life stage is now the verb adulting, right? You're adulting. Adulting means that you have to figure out where to live and where to work and how to balance studying for exams and you have to kind of the finale of the semester there's these things that are piling up. There's responsibilities. There's a weight. There's a weight to relationships and to looking for a partner or friends. There's a weight to moving and constantly being in transition. But the problem with your life stage is that it's far more advanced, far more complicated than the stage you were just in. But the other problem is that it doesn't stop. Then you, let's say, you graduate, and then you go work full-time, and you're trying to balance maybe grad school and a job. Or if you get married, then you're trying to balance this relationship. Or if you have children, then it, I was just thinking of my last, my last week. You know, I've got to get grass seed in the ground while it's still spring. I've, I've got to be at the birthday party, and we've, we've got to take the kids to this thing, and it's Mother's Day. I can't forget to get her a gift. It's just thing after thing after thing. It's, it's career-oriented. We're, I've got to put in the time to have my name rise above the rest so that I can get the promotion. It's just your life stage will, I think, until it hits, I don't know about retirement. I've I've been thinking about for those who are empty nesters and stepping into retirement. But even then, you're still carrying the weight of the complexity of life and now generations and you're caring for your parents and for health. You're not just exercising. Now you're worried about doctor's visits and healthcare plans and and post-retirement and You're trying to figure out all of life. And what it looks like then is that it's hectic. It's out of rhythm because our rhythm in our country seems to be like more, faster. It's just speed isn't exactly a rhythm. It's just overwhelming sometimes. I think Jesus kind of understands this. I was reading one author. He says, I've often marveled to think that Jesus was so terrifically busy. If you think about Jesus, he's... he's, being pulled by the lepers and the attention and the people calling for his help. He's being kind of tapped and, and, and prodded. He's, he's going from thing to thing to thing constantly. And yet, he was so terrifically busy, but only with the things he was supposed to be doing. One author says he was rarely, if ever, in a hurry. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? But our out of rhythm isn't just about our life stage. It's more so, I think, about a distracted age. And this is something that Jesus did not experience in first century Galilee. The the world that we live in has become much more complex. Even a hundred years ago, the invention of electricity changes the world. 
Because before that, the average time that people spent sleeping was between 10 and 12 hours. You read about these giants in the faith, waking up at 4 a.m. to pray and to read their Bibles. It's like, that's amazing. I wish I could do that. It's like, guys, they've already slept for eight hours. They went to bed at 6 p.m. at dark. It's a different world now. It's, it's fuller. It's more complicated. It's, it's busier. And it, guys, electricity was a long time ago. We've come some, some way since then. There was a, an author, Ronald Rollheiser. He's writing in the 90s. He says, Neil Postman suggests that as a culture, we're amusing ourselves to death. That is, we're distracting ourselves into a bland, witless superficiality. What he means is that our culture, our age that we're living in, even in the 90s, is just we want to go from thing to thing to thing. We want to fill it up. It's not just the life stage that we're in. It's the age that we're living in. In the 1960s, there was a Senate subcommittee. They, they tasked this group with researching what life is going to be like for Americans. 1967, they say, by 1987, the average American would only work 22 hours per week, 27 weeks a year. Does that happen for you? Leisure time is actually down 37%, not up, since the 1960s. We do more. And then with our leisure time, it's become much more complex. Somebody described the internet as like stepping into a world with a billion people. Remember what this is like? Early internet, I'm looking around. Most of you know what AOL Instant Messenger is? Okay. This is how my wife and I connected. Um, I wasn't on Facebook. We used AIM. And in AIM, it's like, well, you get somebody's username and you have a, a conversation. It, it's pretty great. And then Facebook comes around and it's like, wow, I, I can meet this person. I can keep up with this person from college. But as the internet gets more complex, something else happens. It's not just, oh, my friend from senior year, or oh, this new girl that I just met in chemistry class. It's, oh, Nigerian prince who wants a million dollars. It's like, what? Let's do a quick, quick survey. Raise your hand if you have more than 30,000 unread emails. All right, all right. 50,000? Jamie, how many do you have? Let's do a quick contest. Who has the most unread emails currently? And then we're going to all shame you together. No. <laughs> Too high. I wish it was just dot, dot, dot because it couldn't fit. Okay, 12,000, 60,000. Some of you are listening thinking like, guys, just check your emails, right? But, but the point is, every one of these is a tap. It's a notification. It's a tug. And even if you swipe and mark unread, you're having to do that thousands and thousands and thousands of times because of the world that we live in. The notification world means that we're constantly distracted. We're distracted because of the the complexity of our lives. We're distracted because of the complexity of our world. And this takes its toll on us. Alan Noble, he, he wrote one of my favorite books a couple of years ago called Disruptive Witness. He says, we are addicted to novelty, and as with most addictions, it takes its toll on our bodies. We become mentally fatigued, scrambled. In this way, the modern mind is often not prepared to engage even in dialogue about anything but superficial topics. So we feel tired. Our minds are scrambled. We're unable to read books because we're just constantly scrolling. I was remember, there's an author named Philip Yancey. He, Christian, wrote a very popular book about grace. 
But he wrote an article a couple of years ago, and he's like, guys, I can't even read anymore. He's a writer who's unable to read because his mind is just turned to, to like a, a mush from the world that he's living in. For most of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we settle for a mediocre version of it. Rollheiser again. For every kind of reason, good and bad, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. We would like these. It's just that we're habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. That's in the 90s. I was like, well, you should learn about the internet today. You should hear about our smartphones. And so what ends up happening, they did research, 20,000 Christians around the world. This says Christians have a tendency to want fullness of life, right? We want that. We want fullness of life. And the culture says the way to get fullness of life is to adopt a culture of busyness. But then there's a sequence that that introduces you into. You adopt a culture of busyness from the world around us, and then the busier we get, that our habits with God become marginalized. The more your habits with God are marginalized, the more dissatisfied you are spiritually, the, the emptier you become. The emptier you become, the more you desire fullness of life, and so you adopt a culture of busyness, and the cycle just gets worse and worse. We become disintegrated from our churches, even from our own selves and our own faith. This isn't like an isolated theoretical experiment. This is happening in all of our homes. We know what it's like to be busy in our life stage. We know what it's like to be consumed and distracted by our technology. And we know the toll that that takes on us spiritually. So let me illustrate with this. this do, you, do you like this? little edit. To behold the face of God, our creator, but instead you introduce a little smartphone and it becomes so consuming that you're unable to even see the presence of God who's so glorious and awesome and, and present. It's funny, but then when we look at our own lives and realize that's actually been happening, I feel distant from God, like, like it's more work to practice his presence than it is reward. So what do we do about this? If Jesus understands what it's like to be busy and yet he's never in a hurry, what do we do? I think what we have to do, if we talk about distraction, we have to figure out what it is we're being distracted from. And then I think Jesus offers a better way into not a life of distraction, but that life of fullness that's causing us to pursue the distractions to begin with. Our text to introduce this series is Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Let's, let's dive in there. If you've got a Bible from the coffee house, it's page 892, 892. It's going to be on the screen in the English Standard this week. It says, now as they went on their way, the way is actually one of the early names for Christianity because Jesus was on the move. His people were too. They were on the way. 
So as they're on the way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed, her, welcomed him into her house. She's like oikos right here, right? She's welcoming people into her home, practicing hospitality. Martha is the hero of this story from an oikos perspective. She's on brand, right? Good job, Martha. If only it ended right there. Verse 39 says, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Just hold that view. She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha, it says at the beginning of verse 40, was distracted with much serving. It goes on to say, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. This is a reasonable thing, right? I just want to draw attention to the fact that Martha is not distracted with much Netflix. Martha is not distracted with much NBA playoffs or The Bachelor. Martha is not distracted with her side hustle. Martha is distracted with serving Jesus. There's a couple of words that show up here. The, the word serve. Jesus himself says, the Son of Man has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he came. The, Tell her then to help me. That's a, a that's a word that Paul uses to describe the Holy Spirit. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us. Because this is something the Son of God came here to do. This is something the Spirit of God continues to do. To serve and to help is a good thing. And yet, Jesus can still say that you are distracted with much serving. How have you left me here to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Jesus counters that. And instead, if you've got the, actually, it's right here. Can I hand this to somebody, Mark? This is all scripted, don't worry. All right, next verse. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Go on, Mark. But one thing is necessary. One thing, one thing is necessary. It's not serving. It's not helping. It's not all the other stuff that we fill our lives with. There is one thing that is necessary, and let's hold on to what it is. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This language of a portion is really interesting. I, I noticed that in the Old Testament, they're giving out portions and inheritance, right? This is about what your, your inheritance is from God. You know, you get this, this land over here, Judah. You get this land over here, Dan. You get this land over here, Manasseh. But the Levites do not get land as their inheritance, their portion. Instead, the text says that Yahweh himself will be our portion. This language starts showing up in the Psalms, that God, you are my portion. In fact, we sang it today in the Amazing Grace song, that you are my portion. It's there in, in Psalm 73. It's, this idea is there in Psalm 27. This is one of my favorite psalms right now. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is my portion. You see, it's a difference, though. It's not an inheritance of, of wealth or land or money. 
or status. It's not a name that you inherit. It is the Lord who is my portion. And he says, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away. It will not be taken from her. One thing I have asked, this is the thing she gets. Now, Martha is expecting a positive answer. Greek scholars, they say that the way the question is asked in Greek makes it clear that Martha anticipates a positive answer to her questions. She expects Jesus to come to her aid, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, this is the one thing that is necessary. Let's just pause for a second and notice the one thing that is necessary. A life of discipleship to Jesus. The way the text shows this life of discipleship, it says that she sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. This posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus is a mark of disciples throughout the gospel. For instance, do you remember the woman? She comes to him and she washes his feet. He's in the home of a Pharisee and he tells the Pharisee, he says, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and she's wiped them with her hair. This is a disciple. It's someone who comes to the feet of Jesus. There's a, a man who has a demon. Jesus had cast out the demon. The man returns to him, and it says he f- they found the man whom the demon, had, the demon had gone, but he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Or Jairus, remember he had a, a sick daughter. He comes to Jesus, and it says that he, he, he falls at his feet, and he implores him to come to his house. The Samaritan leopard, he comes back. Jesus, thank you. He falls at his feet. Over and over, the mark of somebody who responds in a positive way to Jesus is somebody who comes to his feet. This isn't just a mark of people in the Gospel of Luke. This is a mark culturally at the time of what it looks like to become a disciple of your rabbi, to become a follower of your teacher and Lord and master. To sit at his feet is to become a disciple to fall under his teaching, to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, to to take this approach with Jesus is the posture of a disciple. To put yourself under him, to sit at his feet, is to learn from his teaching and to follow in his way. Do you see it? The one thing is necessary, and the one thing is a lie. It's being, being a disciple of Jesus. The one thing, which means then that all the other things in some ways become distractions. They become distractions in in the hurry and bustle of life. They become distractions in terms of the scrolling and technology and the notifications. But the one thing they're distracting us from is what it would look like to be a disciple of Jesus. I think the disciple of Jesus then takes two parts. The first part we see with this, this Mary, go on, Mark, is to be with Jesus. A life of discipleship is characterized by being with Jesus. Mary is with Jesus. Instead of just serving for Jesus, she is here with Jesus. Rich Villadas, he wrote a book called The Deeply Formed Life. And he talks about doing without being. He says, any doing our part will only be as deep as our being. When we're doing without being, we're liable to serve in order to gain the approval of others. To lead, to mask a deep sense of insecurity. To volunteer, to get God to love us more. To start new things, to prove our worth. To overfunction, not giving adequate space for our own health. You see the danger of doing without being. He says, the list goes on. Sooner or later, the consequences of doing without being catch up to us, whether in the form of sickness or resentment or duplicity or fatigue. Our engagement in the world becomes marked by a kind of stale obligation than joyful participation. So here, Mary and Martha have different approaches to discipleship to Jesus. One is doing, one is being. 
Martha seems to overvalue her productivity, and she undervalued his presence. Martha seems to overvalue the situation's urgency. He's here. We've got to get this food ready. We have to set the table. And she undervalued the portion that is there for eternity. Villardus goes on, though. He says, there's a danger in doing without being, but there's also a danger in being without doing. The danger goes both ways. And so he says, we're called to really be active contemplatives or contemplative activists rather than just kind of stale people. So though we're done with chapter 10, I actually want to keep going because we get a different vision, not just of being with Jesus, but we get a picture of what it looks like to do what Jesus did. Do what Jesus did. This is exactly where the next chapter goes. They see Jesus doing Jesus things, and the disciples say, will you help us do what you are doing? Take a look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Go on to the next verse, Mark. And he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, the way he introduces this prayer shows us that he actually wants us to say this prayer. Not just pray like this prayer, but he wants us to pray this prayer. When you pray, say this. And then, as you can recognize, this is something like what we call the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, though, is actually from Matthew's version of this story, and it's a little longer. This is the prayer I start my day with every morning. I pray the thing that Jesus taught us to pray over in Matthew chapter 6. But here's Luke's version. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Next verse, Mark. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? Go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. This would have been a huge embarrassment at the time to have a guest with no hospitality. And he says, he will answer from within, don't bother me, the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. Now, if you're a parent, and there's like lights out, everybody's asleep, and then you hear somebody banging on the door. You're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this, is, this is the story he's saying. He says, I cannot give you up and give you anything. Keep going, Mark. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, one more slide, yet because of his impudence, he will get up and give him what he needs. His, his how does the NIV put it? His um, shameless audacity because of his, because you're being so annoying and persistent, that's actually why I'm answering you. I am not your friend right now. If you show up after dark and banging on my door with my kids in bed, I'm not your friend right now. He says, if that's the friends that you have and they still come through, can you imagine how much more God will come through? It's this plea for persistence to be with God and to ask God for what you want. He gives another illustration, though. He says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Go to verse 11, Mark. You see what he's promising, that in persistence, God will be present. You want to be with Jesus? You want to do what Jesus did? He says, he will not let you down. He illustrates, what father among you? If his son asks for a fish, we'll instead give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. You see, God's not going to give you something, he's saying, that's dangerous, that's bad for you. 
And if those things are coming, they're probably not coming from God. Those scorpions and those serpents, God isn't that kind of father. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? Will you put it down on that last section there, Mark? Will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this is a change. We've heard this parable before in other places, and it's how much more will your heavenly father know how to give you good gifts? But here Luke shows us, Jesus shows us, that the greatest gift, the thing that he really wants for us, is him. To be with Jesus and to do what Jesus did is to have an abiding relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. He will not hold him back. He wants to be present in a special way. A life of discipleship is not meant to be a life of grinding and work. It's meant to be a life lived in the presence and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that presence and joy, yes, requires work. That transforming grace that is both free to us and it's costly to us. But the gift is the Holy Spirit himself. What does this look like? Go to the next slide, Mark. Just kind of put it together. A life of discipleship that we see in this section means being with Jesus, sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching, being in his presence. But it also means practicing the practices of Jesus, doing what Jesus did. Put on that next one, Mark. To do what Jesus did is to adopt Jesus' pace and rhythm of life. You walk with Jesus for miles along the way, and then you say, Jesus, will you show me how to do that? And Jesus shows us that he has a set rhythm of life. In, in the gospel, he has this rhythm in Luke 3, it says, while he's praying, in Luke 6, he went out on the mountain to pray. He continued all night in prayer, and he's praying alone. He went on the mountain to pray. He taught us to always pray. He says, but I have prayed for you that you, your faith might not fail. And he, when he came to the place, as was his custom, he prayed. Jesus has a rhythm of both being with and then disciples. He says, now come along, let me show you the way to do what I did. Go to the slide that says rhythm of life, scaffolding. So we look at Jesus and we say, I want to be with you because you connect me to the Father and to the Spirit. And I want to do what you did because you show me really the fullness of life, the fullness that I'm hungering for, the flourishing that I desire in my, in my heart. You show me that way. I want to do what you did. A rhythm of life, another way to talk about it in Christianity is a rule of life. It comes from a Latin word that means a trellis. Uh, this past week, I got a lot of seeds in the ground in my garden. But before we did that, we planted pole beans, which means they're going up. They're not just growing little bushes, they're going up. And so we have to give some structure for them to grow. Otherwise, they will grow all over everything and ruin the garden. Structure can help us bear fruit. We planted some tomatoes. We put a tomato cage on it. Why? Because structure enables us to bear fruit. The fruit of love for God and the fruit of love for neighbor, it flourishes best when we have a little structure. That's what we mean by a rhythm of life. The rhythm of life that we seek to adopt is the pace, the rhythm of Jesus, to be with him and to do what he did. All right, next, next slide, Mark. But part of this rhythm of life means finding out what the keystone is. 
The keystone in an archway is the thing that holds all the other pieces together. It's where its support and strength is drawn from. And here we know that the keystone is to live a life of discipleship. One thing is necessary. To help us do that, there can be a little structure. Um, If you read books on like habit formation and productivity, um, like Charles Duhigg, he wrote a book called The Power of Habit. And he says there's three pieces to creating a habit. The first piece is a cue. A cue. It's where you already have a routine. That's the second piece, a routine. And then the third piece of habit formation is a reward. Some, something that's good that makes you want to do it again. A cue, a routine, and a re- reward. And I think I just want to try to simplify your cues as we explore what it would, like to, what it would be like to put these into practice. There are three cues that I think are probably, at least for my life, the most accessible. I do them every day. The first one is uh, morning, waking. Every morning I wake up. Every morning you wake up, and then what do you do? You probably grab your toothbrush, and maybe you go to the bathroom, maybe you take a shower, maybe you put on clothes. You already have a cue followed by a routine that can be very easy to build on top of. Where there's already a routine, there's already a cue, you can add something in or shift it just a little with just a little work. Morning is a wonderful time to add in a rhythm of being with Jesus and doing what Jesus did. Mealtimes are also something that I do every single day. I eat uh, a couple of times a day. This can be another, you already have a cue where I'm going to lunch or I sit down to eat or maybe you're, you're in a hurry. But a mealtime can be another cue where you slow down to be with Jesus and to do what Jesus did. And the final one that I have is at bedtime. And mostly my cue is my kids' bedtime. Um, my kids have very obvious cues that they're ready for bed. Um, they lose control of themselves. <laughs> they, they get loud. And it's like, oh, it's bedtime. But what a wonderful opportunity for a family to practice discipleship together, for a father and a mother to model the way of Jesus. We're going to be with Jesus. And we're going to do what Jesus did at this bedtime routine. Morning. Now, you'll notice that exercise is not on my list. I do not have, the confession time, I do not have a consistent exercise habit. For me, that is not a cue. I'm going to have to build that from scratch, right? And I'm working on it. But for you, it may be. You may have other cues in your life that are saying, this is a daily thing that I just do naturally. This can be an opportunity to be with Jesus and to do what Jesus did. But what do we do with these cues? What is the routine that we're advocating for? If you've been through Welcome Home, this is not a surprise to you. The rhythm of life that we're asking you to adopt is based on a set of habits drawn from the life of Jesus that are all there in the history of Israel and in the history of the church called the transforming graces. Now, if you were in Welcome Home, we basically thrust those on you and we said, here's what we want you to do. Go figure it out. But there was no teaching that went along with it. There was no reasoning that went with it. It was just an assignment to go do this. And so for the next six weeks after this, we're going to explore a little more what those can look like and why. We're going to slow down. And so this is a really good time to continue to refine your rhythm of life, of being with Jesus and doing what Jesus did. This isn't something that, oh, good, seven weeks before, after, I'm changed forever. 
Because if it's a habit, it will fall by the wayside if you don't continue to do it. So we're going to kind of continue to inject some fuel into that system so that you can have this, I'm really mixing metaphors, the structure of the rhythm of life. Okay. The big assignment today is to do an audit of your kind of rhythms and busyness and distraction. Can you just take some time over the next week to evaluate on a scale of one to 10, how distracted is your life? How distracted is your life? And then over the next seven weeks, we'll be creating structure to actually embrace the one thing that is necessary, to sit at the feet of Jesus. Mark, go to that last slide. That phrase, at the feet of Jesus, I think is such a beautiful, vivid reminder of why he is the one we go to. Let me wrap up with this. This is not the last scene where someone comes to the feet of Jesus. This is not the last scene where Mary comes to the feet of Jesus. And I think where people come to the feet of Jesus shows us why he's the one to go to. Mary has a brother. His name's Lazarus. He gets sick. Mary knows who Jesus is. She's been at his feet. She's listened to his teaching. She knows Jesus can do something about my brother's sickness. So she sends a messenger to Jesus. Jesus delays. He waits. He waits. He waits. And then he comes. This is what Mary does. Jesus finally shows up in her hometown, back in her home. Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell at his feet. We've seen this scene before. She's the disciple who comes to Jesus, and she fell at his feet. But this time, she comes to Jesus, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think Jesus is the one to go to in grief. pain and longing because next chapter Mary realizes that he is the resurrection and the life so the next scene she's back at the feet of Jesus Martha is still serving in John 12 Lazarus is now not dead he's sitting at the table And Mary, it says, anointed the feet of Jesus with this perfume that was so costly. And she wiped his feet with her hair. She anoints the feet of Jesus. Because now she knows, by being with Jesus, by doing what Jesus did, that he is actually going to become the resurrection of life through the cross. She's anointing him for his burial. So the next time Mary sees him, it's seen, there's Mary at the foot of the cross. And there's, a, there's a, a nail that's driven through the feet of Jesus, and she stands at the bottom of the cross at, at the feet of Jesus. They have to rush to bury him. Thankfully, she's already prepared him for burial. Whenever he appears to them, you know what he says? He says, look at my feet. Look at my hands. He says, I am flesh and I am blood. Look at me. And it says, when he said that, he showed him his feet. She falls down at his feet. 
Jesus is the one who understands death and sickness. Jesus is the one who can do something about it and give life. Jesus is the one who has the scars to prove that he is the one to go to no matter what season or stage you are in today. I think on Mother's Day, maybe of all days, I try to be really mindful of just the different places women in our church are at. Some want a husband, or at least a boyfriend. Some want a baby. We've got babies in wombs today. Some are holding their baby for the first time this Mother's Day. Some are just trying to get their kids quiet, right? On Mother's Day, we're just in so many different places, but the feet of Jesus show that no matter what place you're at, he's the one to go to with it. He's actually go to him in every life stage. Last, last uh, feet of Jesus. It's in Revelation. Um, John, he gets this vision of Jesus. He looks up and he sees him. And it says in his right hand, he has the seven stars. Out of his mouth, there's this two-edged sword. His face is shining like the sun at full strength. He is the first and the last. He's the living one. He has the keys of death. And then it says John falls down at his feet as though dead. This should be like a meme today, right? This is dead. Because he sees that Jesus isn't only the one who understands our pain. He's not only the one that went to the cross. That he is the one who has the keys to death and is now victorious. He is the living one. Go to Jesus. Be with Jesus. Do what Jesus did because he is the way to life. He is the the king, the victor. He wants you to be with him no matter what you are going through. And he wants you to do it as often as you can. And he promises that he will not let you down. What a friend we have in Jesus. He says, your father, what a father we have. He wants to give you the spirit. Would you lean into him? Would you stand? I'm going to just offer a quick blessing and then I invite you to go get your kids. Lord God, we are amazed at the feet of Jesus. How he has human feet like, like us, that you became human. How he has scars in his feet today because he went to the cross for us. But those scars no longer have a nail in them because you have raised him from the dead. And Father, we bow before you. And we give thanks for the name of Jesus. Father, we desire to be filled up with your spirit, to be with you in ways that are life-giving, not just draining, not just where it feels like work, but in our being with you, you fuel us for your mission to go do. Father, I pray that as we draw near in our rhythm of life, that you would draw near to us. For your glory and the kingdom of Christ our Lord. Amen.